Our reading this morning is from Genesis 12. Just three verses this morning. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, um, the more we want to understand God's word, the more we want to learn compassion for one another, enjoy our communion that we have together uh, with God, the more we need to, him to work through his word. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you be with us. Teach us by your word. Because in it are the words of life. Be at work in our hearts, we pray. By your spirit. In Christ's name. Amen. I still think one of the greatest animated sequences I know of is the beginning of WALL-E. You all know this Pixar movie. Uh, the first ten minutes are just kind of brilliant cinema. You know, cinema. They really are. They're, it's ten minutes of, with no dialogue whatsoever. You get this picture of life in a world that's just been ruined, right? Uh, you kind of piece together through signs and kind of advertisements running what had happened, right? That humanity has left Earth, kind of having pretty much made a mess of it, and there are supposed to be these robots cleaning up the world so we can come back to it. And, but all that we see left of those robots is this one guy, Wally, who's going about doing his thing, right? And it's 10 minutes of, uh, of just watching him and his personality comes out, and you're piecing together some of the backstory. Uh, and it's, and uh, there's a lot of funny stuff that happens in it, too, because you kind of learn about him and how he responds to things. But it's just long enough for you to start to get that feeling of, like, this is what it's like just day in and day out. The drudgery, right? The same repetition, the same problems over and over and over again. And then a spaceship lands. <laughs> and then the other robot, Eva, shows up. And his whole world changes. And that drudgery is broken up. I'm not going to go through the whole story. <laughs> but that's a little bit like what the early part of Genesis is. You know, from chapter 3 with the fall through chapter 11 where we have been, while the story has been different and there's been different aspects we've seen, it's pretty depressing. It's sort of like another monotonous moment of humanity being awful, of sin. Uh, in, in some ways, it is the story of sin spreading throughout the world to fill the whole earth. And the way that God's presence was supposed to fill the whole earth, instead we have sin filling it. But this is the moment where God breaks in. This is the moment where things start to change. This is where God's grace begins to work. So we're going to see this morning the prompting of grace, the promise of grace, and the purpose of grace. The prompting, promise, and purpose. So it begins in, in verse 1 with this call, this prompting from God. Go. 
we know almost nothing about Abram at this point. Now, later his name is changed to Abraham, so you're going to notice I'm going to slip up throughout the sermon. It's inevitable. I'm going to start calling him Abraham. Same guy. Uh, but we know very little about him. We get, at the end of chapter 11, we get a genealogy again. <laughs> we get the story a little bit about who he is. We know that his family had migrated from uh, Mesopotamia, which is basically the region along the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. They had, moder- that they had wandered from there, and they had ended up in eastern Turkey above modern-day Iraq. And they were there. We don't know exactly how long, but they were there for a while. And then, and then we learned just a few other things, that he is married to Sarai, and that she's barren. And then out of nowhere, God speaks. There's very little context about who either Abram is or what his background is with God. Does he even know who this God is that's talking to him? What does he know? Does he know these stories that we've been reading? We don't even know. He simply hears God's calling. Go. And he leaves behind a ton. Again, we think about moving as not that big a deal. Now, I get some some of y'all grew up in Charleston. You've been here your whole life. That's great. A lot of you have moved. But we just don't think about it as that big a deal. But you're leaving everything behind. See, the ancient world is an agrarian world. It's an agricultural one, right? So the ability to generate wealth comes from owning and working the land. That is the primary way you can expand your wealth. He's leaving that behind. It's also a familial culture. I mean, most traditional cultures still are. The family bonds are strong. And that might sound like a good thing, but when you're leaving, it means you're leaving all that behind. So that, again, wealth and status is accumulated slowly and through the generations. It was really hard to get rich quick in the ancient world. <laughs> That's partly what I'm saying. Uh, it was hard to accumulate wealth because, because it is a slow-moving thing. It is a thing accrued over time. And so you inherit wealth primarily. So if you leave your family behind, you can't inherit anything. It is your security and your stability. Those kind of bonds of kinship are part of what protect you as well. Abraham is leaving all of that behind. This is a, I mean, a not only risky, but you might even say dangerous thing to do. He's leaving it all. In fact, there's a, a, a little plot point that keeps coming up through the life of Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob is that they don't own any land. So even when they're wandering around what becomes the promised land, they have to continue to negotiate land with the people that do own it. If, the, if, the, if this, these wealthy people or these kings will let them graze their animals there because they don't have any land of their own. They're wandering about. But Abraham, and this is the important point to take away from that, Abraham, despite the cost, listens to God. 
It's a pretty simple point, isn't it? Abraham listens to God. And that is a really, that begs a really important question for us. Do we listen? Now, I realize that in the evangelical world, when we talk about listening to God, we immediately start thinking about people who talk about how they feel God was leading them in this way or that. And it's not that that language is completely illegitimate. I use that language every once in a while. I mean, I'll talk about, you know, how I've been praying through something, thinking about something. I mean, I'll use that language too. But when we hear that language a lot, people are basically just telling us their subjective opinion. They're just telling us how they feel, by and large. And, of course, some people do really goofball things with that. And some people do really hurtful things with that. And so we always have to be really careful when we start to talk about feeling like God is leading us somewhere, feeling like God is telling us something. And, you know, more often than not, unfortunately, when people tell you that they feel God is leading you somewhere, it's, it always seems to be towards the, a direction where they might earn more money or be more well-liked or well-known, which ought to give us a, at least a little suspicion, right? And in fact, what you hear, though, in those who, who choose to do things that are less hip, that are less cool, that are going to bring them less attention, like, say, loving the poor and the needy, turning the other cheek, taking the lower place, what you hear is less about feeling like God is leading and you hear more about God's Word. You hear them thinking about the character of God that's revealed in it, about the fruit of the Spirit that we're called to put on, about what Jesus Himself says. And you see, it isn't that there isn't room for that subjective or for conviction about a specific thing. But what you see is people who are thinking deeply about God's Word and about the situation that they're in, personally, in society, and that's when conviction sets in. It is less emphasis on their subjective feelings and more on God's Word. More on thinking deeply about what God has called us to. And here's the deal. We all want to know what God is going to do. I mean, don't you want to know what God's going to do in your life? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that every person here has some sort of sense that there's something open-ended in their life, right? And they want it resolved. And it could be big, it could be small. It, it really, you know, it's the kind of thing that it still consumes as much mental space as you have, right? Like, however big it is, however small it is, it still seems to, to fill the space that's there. We all wonder about something, and we wonder about the biggest things, Right? Like, when you're in high school, you, as you're getting to the end of high school, you're wondering, like, what college should I go to? And it feels this, like, big weight. Or should I choose to go some sort of other route, right? That feels like a big weight because it's a consequential decision. When you're in college, you're thinking about your career, right? Like, what career should I go into? Because it's a consequential decision, right? Like, along the way in your career, you're going to have other choices to make, too. And they're consequential, <laughs> I mean, we want to know, you might want to know about who you're going to marry, something like that, right? Like, those are consequential decisions. Yes, 
But the weirdest thing is, all those big consequential decisions, that's such a tongue twister, isn't it? Consequential decision. Um, all those big decisions are the ones that God leaves us tons of freedom on. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't guardrails, but like, there's a lot of room to navigate. There's a lot of different paths which are totally legitimate. The strangest thing is in the ways that God does tell us what he wants. We're not scared of the freedom. We're scared of being bound too closely. So in the basic things like how God wants us to deal with our sin, how God wants us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, how God wants us to learn the patterns, the rhythms of repentance and forgiveness. How he wants us to bear witness to Jesus. How he wants us to care for his church. These are, these are the kinds of daily things that we feel like are straitjacket. Right? Like, I don't want to deal with that. We're scared of the freedom that he offers in these big decisions, but we're Terrified as well of the straitjacket we feel like he's putting on us daily. And the reality is that what God is more interested in is who you're becoming that is going to make those big decisions rather than mapping out for you which way to go in the big ones. To be the kind of person that is wise, that is growing in holiness, that can see the pitfalls in those big decisions for what they are. And that knows at a knows subjectively in a daily way that he is good and that he watches over us and that he cares for us and has the best for us. That's what God's more interested in. In the in the children's catechism, it talk, when it talks about how Adam and Eve were made, it says they were made happy and holy. And that's what God wants. Like, if you want to know God's will for your life, it's that you would be holy and happy. Now, you know, holy, we, we get an idea of what that means. Happy, of course, we don't just mean in the immediate moment, but the, the long term, the joy of the gospel. So this is a really simple question that comes out of verse 1, is are we listening to God? Are we listening to what he has said to us? You know, sometimes I think we, we wonder, wouldn't it be great if God just spoke to me like he did to Abram? But you know, you can read through Genesis. And God spoke to him a handful of times. Now, I'm sure that was a powerful, amazing moment. But God has spoken to you many, many, many more words than Abraham ever received. So who are you listening to? God's call is to listen to his voice. To listen to him above all those other voices, all those other concerns. He prompts us to listen to him, but, but he gives a promise. This, gives us to ver- this gets us to verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. 
This is why I say this is the beginning of the rescue plan. This is the beginning of the, of the plan of redemption. Because here God is acting. You see, he hinted at the judgment back in Exodus 3, or Genesis 3. Uh, he hinted that he was going to crush the head of Satan by the seed of the woman, but, I mean, that's not a lot to go on. <laughs> uh, he, we saw implied in the sign of the rainbow after the flood that God was going to do something that cost him to heal this world. But it's just a sign. Here the plan is being set in motion. And what's fascinating is through the life of Abraham, every time God speaks to him, it's always echoing things that came before in Genesis. And here the, the thing that's the most obvious is the echoes back to the Tower of Babel in the previous chapter. Because what did they want to be? They wanted to be a great nation. They want to consolidate power and rule over others, dominate over others. They want to make themselves a great nation. And in contrast, God says to Abram, I will make you great. They wanted to make a name for themselves, right? To have a they wanted to think of themselves so well. They wanted to think that they were great. And here, by contrast, God says, I will make your name great. God's the one who's going to give a name. It's kind of interesting, too. This gets highlighted over and over and over again in the Bible. That it is God who is the one who's acting. That it is God who's the one who's going to bring about redemption. That it is God is the one who accomplishes it. All of it. One place this, this is uh, this kind of fascinating is when you go to the, the book of Deuteronomy. So it, Genesis is the beginning of the books of Moses. And Genesis tells all the backstory that leads up to Exodus. Exodus is a big deal. <laughs> Exodus is where we get a lot of vocabulary for salvation. And then the people wander in the desert for 40 years. That's a whole long story. But then the book of Deuteronomy is the very end of the books of Moses. And it is Moses' farewell speech. But Moses takes time over and over and over again to remind the people of who they are. And remind them more than that of who God is. And so in Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells them, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. Indeed, with Abraham, he is one. Okay, maybe Sarai too. Two. It's not because they were great in number that God chose them, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God's stepping in not because they're impressive, but because he is going to do something impressive through them. And then even later on in Deuteronomy 26, when they're, when they're told about when you go into the promised land and you take control of it and you offer the uh, sacrifice of the first fruits of the first harvest, he gives them something to say and the opening line is, a wandering Aramean was my father. That's Abraham. A wanderer. That's all he was. But God brought us here. God has given us this. See, God is the one at work 
to make them great, to make a name for them. But like I mentioned earlier, the one, one, of, only, one of the only real details we know about Abraham and Sarai is that Sarai was barren. And so the main drama of Abraham's life is waiting for a son. The main drama of Abraham and Sarah is waiting for this child. It's kind of weird. I mean, at some level, it kind of proves you don't see Abraham actually do a lot when you read these stories. And when he does decide to do something, he usually messes things up. Well, we'll probably return to these next year and uh, some of these stories, and we'll get to some of that. But you'll see that whenever he decides he's going to take initiative, he, he screws things up or seems to do his best to screw things up. But God is faithful through it all. God provides. So the central drama of waiting for the son, you know, it is fulfilled with Isaac, but the promise is much bigger, isn't it? It's not just for this one son. It is to become a great nation. It is to grow. It is to be a blessing to others. So even when we get to the end of Abraham's life, we are waiting to see where this story goes. Because the the end of this promise is not Isaac. The end of this promise is not Jacob and his 12 sons. The end of this promise is not the people of Israel leaving Egypt and coming into the promised land. God's blessing is waiting. When is God going to bless them? When is God going to bless the nations through them? You might just ask the whole, that of the whole history of the Old Testament. Are they not waiting for something else? What are they waiting for? They're waiting for Jesus. Because the promise that they would be great, that they would have a great name, that they would be a blessing, is only finally realized in Christ. It's a little wonder that, that Simeon, the old prophet who was sitting in the temple, when he sees the baby Jesus brought in, what does he say? That he's the glory of his people Israel, and he's a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. Jesus' entire goal was to be faithful where Israel, the descendants of Abraham, had been faithless. Jesus' whole goal was to give his life for them. In fact, not just for those who were Israelites, but for the whole nations, everyone who would come to faith in him. That's Jesus' whole goal. That is the blessing. The blessing isn't the land. The land is a symbol of the blessing that that awaits. It isn't wealth. That's just a symbol. The blessing is Jesus himself. The blessing is God himself come down in the flesh for them. That is the blessing. The blessing they're waiting for is the light of the nations. It's Jesus himself to enter in. And so it's not a mistake then 
that immediately when Jesus fulfills everything with his death and his resurrection, that suddenly the church becomes a new Israel that is filled not only with those who are Jewish, but those who are Gentiles as well. And there's a lot of concern about this throughout the whole New Testament, right? Is that the gospel is not merely for those who are physical descendants of Abraham, but those are who, who are his descendants by faith. Which is, by the way, almost all of us in this room. Is we are descendants of Abraham by faith. Because the blessing that we have received is the blessing of Abraham. God himself entering in. So you see that God is faithful. Through Abraham's life, through Isaac's life, through Jacob's life, all the way down to bring Jesus for you. Even now. I mean, half a world away from where these stories took place. Thousands of years later. To be faithful to you. To bless you. Not with material gain, but with himself. That's the promise of grace. It's Jesus himself. And the purpose is hard to miss. You get to the end of verse 2. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And then he goes on in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will, those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. This is God's clear purpose. It's not just to bless Israel, but to bless the whole world. Now, that is, not a, that is not a knock on Israel. <laughs> Israel is God's instrument for bringing all this about. And we see throughout the New Testament, this is so important to remember, right? The New Testament is not against Israel. Jesus is Jewish. Every single one of the apostles are Jewish. Every single writer of the New Testament, with like probably one exception, Luke, uh, are Jewish. <laughs> They're not against Israel. They're for Israel. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Romans 9, Paul wishes that he was cut off so that the rest of his people would believe. It is to say that the blessing of Israel has poured out over into the nations, into the rest of the world. And that is the whole goal. That has been the goal from word one. The whole goal was for God to redeem the world. So it's no mistake that we get to the end of the Bible, right? And the vision of, the, of his kingdom, the true Israel, is a people gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation. And God is doing this. I mean, we have a kind of a habit of thinking of Christianity as sort of this white Western religion, which it is not. It wasn't in the beginning. Remember, we just mentioned that everybody that started it was Middle Eastern Jews. Um, didn't start that way. The, uh, 
the great theologians, most of the great theologians of the ancient world were Africans, including Augustine, you know, probably the greatest theologian of church history. They were Africans. Funny story about Africa, not ha-ha funny, but Christianity was strong in North Africa in the ancient world. When Islam came up in the 6th century, of course, you probably know that, uh, that the Islamic powers went, uh, went, you know, were expanding aggressively, right, and took over Africa. And so for a long time, Africa became a stronghold of Islam. But the weirdest thing happens. When European powers around the 15th and 16th century start to colonize Africa, as if people didn't already live there, uh, as they took over, they tried to bring their religion with them. Now, there were all kinds of dubious things bound up in this. This is not a particularly great moment in church history. But the weirdest thing happened. As the colonial powers started to move out, and the church had never done particularly well under colonial rule, through the 20th and now the early 21st century, Christianity in Africa, after the colonizers moved out, has exploded. So that the continent with the most Christians in it now is Africa. Like, isn't that amazing? They're not blind to the way that Christianity can be abused and misused, but what the colonizers left behind was his word. And what Africa is doing is listening to God's word. That's not just a story about Africa, by the way. Uh, if you want to look at some of the demographics in terms of continents, in North America, there are 277 million Christians, um, which sounds like a lot. Uh, that's North America. So that also, by the way, includes a good chunk of Latin America, uh, not just the United States. 277 million. Well, Asia has 388 million. And the, if you look at the graphs in China and the Indian subcontinent, the church is exploding at a rate in which they're going to double that within a couple decades. South America has 601 million, over twice what North America has. And like I said, Africa is the most with 631 million Christians. Part of the point, and why I want to kind of emphasize this, is because we often misunderstand what God is doing. God's intention was to bless the whole world. And Christianity sometimes gets a bad rap for being something that it isn't, a white Western religion. In fact, even in the U.S., demographically, who would be the most likely person to be a Christian? Not a white male. It's a black woman. It is a different story than we think is going on. Our eyes are jaundiced. Again, partly that might be the church's fault. We've got a lot of blame to take for various things that we've done wrong. But God is not failing. That's the point. God is not failing. Now, I'm thankful that our church has sent out some missionaries. I think that's 
awesome to other countries, other places. Maybe there's even some of y'all that are being called to that, even now. Most of us are not, and we know that. But you notice the very end, it says he will bless every family. Every family. Maybe you're tempted to think that's hyperbole. God, I know you're ambitious. (laughs) But every family. I think he does. And that's probably where most of us need to take our cue. Is uh, we're not going to go convert a continent. We're not going to go convert a whole people group. But we do have neighbors. We have people we live down the hall from in a dorm. We have people we interact with at work every day. And what we're told is that this is what the kingdom of God is about. It is about growing and being a blessing to every family. And that blessing is Jesus. Now, what that means is we are called to not to be super ambitious in terms of what is, you know, what is this career I'm supposed to embark on, but what am I supposed to do to be faithful today, tomorrow? And part of that faithfulness is celebrating the greatness of Jesus. Celebrating his grace, the beauty of the gospel. That's what we have to offer. And look, the reason to think about sharing the good news is not so that we can feel good about ourselves. It is not to beat out some other religion or non-religion, some competitor. It's not to export our culture, but it is to celebrate the glory of the nations, Jesus himself. And he is doing it. God is already doing it. The last century and a half, I've seen enormous growth in the church. And in places where he historically has not been strong. God is doing this. That's my encouragement to you. Don't have any fear. God is doing this. And you don't have to be aggressive. The message is grace. It is to talk about what Jesus has done on our behalf. That really is all it is. And God will see it through. That's his purpose. That's what he has done and is doing and will complete. And you're just called to be a faithful cog in that wheel. That's really all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Uh, We are not often faithful, but you have not failed in any of your purposes. You've given the blessing that was for Abraham, not just a son for him, for one generation, but your son, so that we could be with you and enjoy you forever. 
Help us to listen. To remember that promise that we've seen made good by the death of Jesus, by his resurrection. And to take joy in being part of your purposes to redeem the whole world. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.